point is that of which there is no part. 2. A line is a length without breadth. 3. The extremities of a line are points. 4. A straight line is any one which lies evenly with points on itself. 5. A surface is that which has length and breadth only. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to The After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. Those five definitions are the first five of 23 that form the introduction to Euclid's elements. They're the things our second semester freshmen must know before beginning proposition number one, the start of a mathematical journey that will last through the fall semester of their sophomore year. As our website notes, quote, Euclid's Elements is the foundational text of mathematics in Western civilization. Without an understanding of this text, one cannot fully understand the most significant scientific and mathematical works of later eras, such as those by Galileo and Newton. Dr. Henry Zepeda regularly teaches Euclid, and I asked him to begin by telling us more about this seminal mathematician and the elements before commenting on Euclid's understanding of proportion. Why is Euclid so important that our students spend an entire year working on his elements? Who was he? What did he accomplish? Why is he so significant? Euclid was a Greek mathematician and um, often considered the father of mathematics and for good reason. One thing that he did was pull together a lot of work that had probably already been uh, thought up and done by other mathematicians, but he presented all in a, in a complete package, a 13-book uh, work that uh, covers the basics of geometry and that proceeds in a, in a very nice way. He lays out definitions uh, and axioms, postulates and common notions right at the beginning of his work. And then he proves things from these, improves them uh, deductively uh, using logic and going slowly step by step. And he goes from the very basic things like we're able to join two points with a line. We're able to take a distance and a center and make a circle. Uh, he goes from some very basic things like that, slowly to very complicated things like proving uh, things about the ratio of spheres to each other or uh, showing us how to put an icosahedron, a 20-sided figure, into a sphere or a dodecahedron, a 12-faced figure, into, uh, into a sphere. Proofs that are, are quite long and are uh, seen by our students as big achievements. Tell us about proportions. That's what you said you wanted to talk about. Tell us about proportions. Yeah, Euclid has a treatment of proportion and ratio in uh, book five of his elements. And it is a difficult book and it's very abstract. Uh, most of the elements, you have pictures that help you Right? If you're proving things about triangles, you can draw them and you can look at your pictures and use them to help your reasoning. 
when you're talking about the ratio of two magnitudes, you don't, and you're treating this generally so they could be any two magnitudes, uh, you don't have much to, to aid your imagination. So it's, it's uh, a very abstract and difficult book of the elements. But I think the real beauty and amaz amazing part of this theory is that it is a theory of proportionality that does, the, that does not rely upon the concept of uh, having some unit that measures two quantities. Um, let, me, let me say a little bit of what I mean by that. If we have numbers like five to three, I can talk about that ratio by looking and seeing which other numbers are in that same ratio by saying, ah, one goes into five, five times, and it goes into three, three times. If I have numbers where there's some other number that goes into them like that, then we, we can say they're in the same ratio. So for example, I said five to three, we could have 10 to six. Two goes into 10 five times, it goes into six three times. So that's similar, that relationship between 10 and six is the same relationship as the relationship between five and three, All right? So that, that's fairly simple when you're dealing with whole numbers to, to say what it means to have the same ratio. But with magnitudes, with other kinds of quantities like lengths and areas, it's much more difficult. And the reason is incommensurability. And that what, what we mean by that is we can have magnitudes, we can have two lines where there is no common measure to them. If we take a square and we uh, connect the opposite corners, we get a line that shares no common measure with the side of that square. There's, you, 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 practically speaking, if you have a square and its diameter or diagonal, you can, you can, you can go down to inches or sixteenths of inches or millionths of inches to some, some measurement beyond which you don't care about. And you can talk about the whole number ratio. You could measure those two lengths according to that unit. But when we're doing pure mathematics and we're not doing this for some reason, uh, we run into the problem that you just can't, you, if, 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 you, uh, if you don't have some limit beyond which you don't care about, you, you could go on forever and you'd never find some unit that would measure both of these. It just doesn't exist. The unit that it precisely measures both of them. So Euclid has to come up with, well, I say Euclid comes up with, actually it's probably a theory of somebody a generation or two before him, Eudoxus. Uh, but this, this theory of proportions, the Eudoxian theory of proportions that's laid out and presented in Euclid's Elements deals with that. It gets around that problem. Maybe I'll leave it there because it gets kind of complicated. Uh, but one of the beauties of his theory is that these Greek mathematicians figured out a way to talk about what it means to be for one ratio to be the same as another ratio when you can't resort to some part that measures both of the quantities or all of the quantities evenly. So this can't even really be drawn? <laughs> um, it depends on what you mean. <laughs> Well, I can draw a square and put a diagonal through it. <laughs> yes, you can get that, right? 
And then if we, if we draw two squares and draw their diagonals, right, we can actually say that uh, we can talk about the, the ratios of the diagonals and the ratios of the sides of those squares. We can say they're the same ratio. Now, the, the easy way of doing proportions would be go down to the smallest unit that measures the lines in each square. But we can't do that in pure math. Uh, we can prove that, those that that just doesn't exist. So what we end up doing in, in this theory of proportions is uh, getting around that problem of not being able to go smaller and smaller and smaller until we finally find a unit. It goes, uh, it proceeds by going bigger and bigger and bigger and saying that if these things were not proportional, eventually a, discrepanc a discrepancy would show up. Oh, okay. Uh, so it goes the other direction. It works by, I'll say it in, uh, without, without having the time to have it written and, and uh, ponder a little bit. This might not be very easy to follow, but it's, it says the definition of the same ratio that ends up getting used is, I'll say this in a way uh, that isn't very definitional, I'll say it in many sentences, but we can say uh, we have the same ratio between quantity A and quantity B in quantity C and quantity D, a first, a second, a third, and a fourth, if we take the same multiple, or if whatever multiple we take of, but they have to be the same multiple, of the first one of those and the third one of those. Then we do that same thing. We take some multiple whatsoever of the second and the fourth. So we extend, extend those out uh, by multiples but the same multiple. So the same multiple, the first and the third, the second and the fourth. Then whenever the multiple of the first exceeds the multiple of the second, likewise, the multiple of the third exceeds the multiple of the fourth. And if equal, if equal, if less, then less than. Um, that was probably a lot. Um, we spend a, a couple of days just thinking about that, making sure that students understand that and seeing uh, why we have such a terribly complicated definition of in the same ratio or proportional. Does this whole notion of the golden ratio or the divine proportion come into this? Yeah, actually, we just finished up book six of the elements. And there, Euclid takes a line and he cuts it in what he calls extreme and mean ratio, but which is in common parlance called the golden ratio or the cutting it according to sometimes it's called the divine proportion. And what that means is you have a line or a quantity and well, I'll explain it with a line. You have a line, you cut it into two pieces such that the ratio of the whole to the big piece is the same as the ratio of the big piece to the little piece. And this is something that Euclid proves here. It's an, there's something just very nice about that. You have one line and it's just cut in a very nice way to be cut very harmonious and proportional. Uh, but it's also very, very useful in mathematics. It, prop, uh, it pops up especially with pentagons. And it also, uh, pentagons are related to, to stars, five-shaped five stars, uh, five-pointed stars. Uh, it, it, Euclid talks quite a bit about, how, uh, about this extreme and mean ratio and how it shows up with pentagons. And pentagons, in turn, are used for making the 
perfect icosahedron and dodecahedron, which are two of the, the five perfect solids that are the culmination of Euclid's elements. Just in the elements, there's quite, quite a, a bit made of this extreme and mean ratio or the golden ratio. Now, I know you well enough to know that this excites you in part because you see it as a very beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Do our students appreciate the beauty and the, uh, the usefulness of all this? Oh, yes, I think so. I think so. Um, a lot of our students end up saying after a semester of Euclid how much they enjoyed, how much they enjoyed the semester, even, even though they had previously thought of themselves as people who don't like math. A, a, lot of, a lot of our students would probably describe themselves as the people who, to whom math does not come easily. <laughs> but there's, there's something really nice about Euclid uh, uh, teaching it in that, that you start from the very beginning, very basic things, and you just work slowly up to very complicated things. And that whole process has a kind of beauty to it, I think. And the students really appreciate that. Geometry, said the early 17th century mathematician Johannes Kepler, has two great treasures. One is the theorem of Pythagoras. The other, the division of a line into extreme and mean ratio. The first we may compare to a measure of gold. The second we may name a precious jewel." Close quote. Kepler also observed, quote, geometry is one and eternal shining in the mind of God. That men share in it is among the reasons that man is in the image of God. And thus, when we study geometry, we exercise the image of God that is so central to our human essence. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.